Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us. <coughs> you are with us now. Thank you as we draw near to Christmas. Thank you for the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem those years ago that we try to understand and we'll look, look into this morning. We pray you'd be with us as we open your word. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. Amen. So, good morning. Um, this is the third in our series in Advent. Um, two weeks ago, Elaine started the series with a meditation on a prayer she taught us. Simple prayer, here I am. She suggested we pray it daily, and it's about making ourselves available to God. The series seems to have a theme, or has a theme, of making ourselves available to God, because last week, Karen Case Green spoke on how Mary had made herself available to God when the angel announced to her God's plan for her to become Jesus' mother. Now, after Mary agreed to God's plan, she sang a song of praise. And the song she sang, which is known as, variously as Mary's song or the Magnificat, that song is said or sung in many churches every week. It's one of Luke's ways of telling his readers why the birth in a stable in Bethlehem that we celebrate at Christmas is so important. He does that in many different ways. And another one is this song we've just read, the partner to Mary's song. It's also said or sung in many churches each week. It's called the Nunc Dimittis, after the opening lines in Latin, Now You Dismiss. It's Simeon's song song Julie has just read to us. And we will look in particular at three words in it. Salvation, revelation, and glory. Words which describe what Jesus came to do for the world. And as we do that, we'll find that it too, in its way, is about making ourselves available to God. So let me start by filling you in on the context of Simeon's song. Following the birth of any baby boy, the Jews observed two religious rites. And they're both mentioned in chapter 2 in Luke. You may need to look back a little bit from the reading. Firstly, when the baby was seven days old, now it says on the eighth day, but that's because Jews counted uh, one on the day of the birth. So seven days after the birth, um, the boy would be circumcised and named, and that would be done by the local rabbi. Now, 33 days after that, so on the day that the baby boy was 40 days old, his parents would take him to the temple in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. And that's what Mary and Joseph were doing in this passage. <coughs> Simeon, is an old, as we come to this passage, Simeon is an old man nearing death. He is devout. He's steeped in the Old Testament in Israel's scriptures. And he's seen in the scriptures a promise of better things for Israel. And he's longing and waiting for that promise to come true. In particular, he's seen a promise of a coming Messiah, of someone anointed by God, someone on whom God's spirit would rest in a special way and through whom God's promises for Israel would come true. Now, Simeon had been promised by God that he would not die. And remember, he's very old. He would not die before he has seen the Messiah. 
And God leads him into the temple on the very day and at the very hour when Mary and Joseph and Jesus are there. And so he takes the baby Jesus in his arms and begins to speak. And the first thing he says is his recognition, his realization that this is the moment he's been waiting for, for the moment he's been longing for. And now he can rest easy. Indeed, he can die in peace because, as he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Which leads us into the first word, salvation. This concept of salvation, or saving, of Jesus as saviour, is one of the key words in this song. It's actually not just this song, but it occurs many times in these early chapters of Luke. It's a point Luke really wants to bring over to his readers. We read of it and hear of it on Mary's lips in the song, on Zechariah's lips later in Luke 1. We hear of it from the angel who speaks to the shepherds. And Jesus' name itself means saviour or God saves. Salvation is really important here. Over the centuries, Christians have developed a, a rich theology of salvation. Actually, I've got this massive um, systematic theology textbook, and it's got, if you look in the index under salvation, 200 pages nearly of this book are dedicated to salvation. And that's not ava- that was not available to Simeon or to Luke, but they were all clear. They and their nation Israel needed a savior. Let's look at why they thought that. Why did the idea of a savior appeal to them in a way maybe that it doesn't naturally connect with our culture today? Certainly, they and their nation were under the cosh of the Romans. Living under the Romans was not a happy existence. Most of us, thankfully, do not know what it is like to live under occupation. The extortionate taxes, the soldiers everywhere, casual brutality, lack of justice, and the constant dilemma of just how much to cooperate and collaborate with the occupier in order to make your life just that bit more tolerable and livable. So saving Israel from the Romans might well have been in people's minds. Some of them may have had immediate practical need of a saviour. Disease, disability, poverty, childlessness, and the poverty that comes from childlessness when you grow old and you have no children to care for you, they would have had bigger impacts in that culture than today. And I don't mean to belittle those who suffer today, For now, as then, there are many who need a saviour for really practical reasons. And that's something I'm going to come back to. But there were deeper issues. I've already alluded to them when talking about Simeon. Issues, things deep within Israel as a nation, within Israel's psyche, that were at play here. Israel had a history of saviours. From Moses, who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, to King David, who defeated the Philistine giant Goliath, and went on to lead the country at the height of its, uh, its power and prosperity. And for several centuries, ever since they'd been exiled, to God, exiled by God to Babylon, Israel had been promised a saviour to come. The, that's the Messiah who Simeon was waiting for. And that's why we traditionally read certain prophecies from Isaiah in carol services, uh, one example being the text from Isaiah 11 that we've uh, just read. Uh, incidentally, if you look through that, you can see all of Simeon's key words, salvation, revelation, and glory, um, in that passage. 
You see those concepts. Now, much was expected in Israel of this coming Savior, but one thing in particular, he would forgive sins. The Israelites had been exiled to Babylon because they had rebelled against God. They'd consistently rejected God because they found the idols, and no doubt the wealth of the nations around them, more attractive. The technical word, or theological word, for rebelling against God is sin. And the punishment for sin, the punishment for rebelling against God, was exile. Not just, phys- not just physical removal from the promised land, over to, from Israel over to Babylon. That was a symbol of the real exile, which was separation from God. And although the Israelites had trickled back from Babylon to Jerusalem, or a remnant of them had, uh, after 70 years, the real exile, that real separation from God, was still going on and still felt by the people centuries later. So these prophecies said that a saviour would come who would forgive sins. No one other than God had forgiven sins in Israel before, but now a saviour would come who would forgive sins. And so would end the exile and restore Israel's relationship with God. And that's why Luke opens with so many references to Jesus as saviour. If you move slightly, move slightly further on in the text, you see that, the, that salvation is prepared in the sight of all nations. And now we start to see a relevance to us, not just to Israel. God's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. He chose Israel to be a light to the rest of the world, to show the world the way to God. And so now we can conclude that the world, not just Israel, is exiled from God because it, because it has rebelled against God. Now, I could explain how the first book of the Bible, Genesis, tells the tale of the first rebellion and the first exile and, it teaches, and how it teaches that all the earth is descended from those who rebelled. To be frank, I don't need to. I think Sarah's already mentioned the evidence of rebellion against God, of a world and of people who have forgotten God and who are living in exile from God and who need a savior. That evidence is all around us. So we need salvation, we need a saviour, and Simeon introduces Jesus as the saviour. But unlike perhaps many preachers, Simeon does not stop at salvation. Being saved is the necessary first step, but it's not the end of the story. Simeon goes on to answer the question, what are we saved for? His answer is based on these two more words, revelation and glory. And let's now turn to revelation. Not revelation in the Bible. This is the idea of revelation before anyone picks up the Bible. So what does he mean by revelation? It's about revealing what was hidden. Now, if we think Jesus has come from God to earth, and Simeon's talking about Jesus, this must be particularly about revealing God to those on earth. To put it another way, Simeon is saying Jesus came that we might know God better. Now, there's much we can know about God. We can know that he created the earth. We can know... Should we switch mic? We can know that he decided where to put the stars and the planets, uh, how they should move. 
We, could, we know that God designed the maths, the physics and the chemistry that makes everything we know possible. We know that God is responsible for nature, for the wonderful intricacy of each of the millions of species. Creation reflects God's character, his artistry, his ingenuity, his care and attention to detail, even his sense of humour. We know that God created beings, men and women, with intelligence, with emotions, with the capacity to love, to hate, to serve, to lead, to create, to destroy, to choose. We can know God through all his deeds in the Old Testament, how he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, how with a mighty hand he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. We can know how he bestowed his wonders on the kingdom of Israel and its greatest king, David. But this is to know about God. It is not to know God, to know him personally. There's a massive difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. I can tell you that a particular woman I know is kind, and that will give you some idea of what she's like. I could tell you, I could tell you a bit more detail. I could tell you of the ways in which she's kind. I could tell you of how she loves to give unusual little presents. And that will give you a better idea of what she's like. But you won't know her particular kindness unless you know her. You won't know her smile, the way she talks, unless you actually meet her, get to know her, spend time with her, listen to her, maybe open yourself up to her, maybe receive a gift yourself from her. Then you can really know her kindness. There's speculation on the front row as to who this might be. I can assure you it's not. <laughs> I can assure you it's not Julia. <laughs> Although I would have many positive things to say about her too. <laughs> it's the same with God. Jesus came to Earth so we could actually know God, not just know about Him. We can't really know God through words on a page, through a preacher, through principles or laws. Only through relationship can we know God. So in knowing Jesus, we not only see God's character, his gentleness, his loving kindness, and his self We not only see God's character, gentleness, his loving kindness, his self-sacrificing love, the way he expresses his authority, his leadership, and his guidance. We get to experience them. We get swept up into his passion for the poor, for the needy, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. In fact, it's through relationship with us that God brings his love to the world. Love is best expressed, indeed can only truly be expressed, in relationship. So this relationship with God then, this is what we're saved for. But relationship is also key to Simeon's third point, glory. And if you look at the text... Glory Simeon spoke of is not God's alone, but is shared with God's people. Israel then, church, the church now. That glory shared between God and his people has relationship at its heart. So we move on to glory. And if you look in the dictionary, you will find that glory has two definitions. One is about magnificence and great beauty. So if you imagine a beautiful vaulting Gothic cathedral or a spectacular view or a magnificent sunrise, each of them could be described in the English language as glorious or having glory. 
The other sense is the sense in which a sports team or, a, or an individual could achieve glory, and that is public recognition of great achievement. Now, in the Bible, there are many references to God's glory. In fact, so many that the word has rather, in, in Christian speak, has rather been, the word has rather been taken over by God. Glory belongs to God, and it describes God. And he gives it to his people and anything connected with him. So God's glory actually links to both aspects of the dictionary definition, of the English definition of the word. Firstly, if we ever get to see him, and the Bible describes a few occasions where God reveals something of himself visually, um, God looks glorious. His appearance, which is normally very bright, brilliant white, his appearance is his glory. The Bible goes a little bit further and says God is glorious, which is slightly stretching the English definition. Of course, the Bible's not using words that were originally in English that's been translated into the English. God is, God is glory. Glory is God's essential character. You don't need to look at God for him to be glorious. It's what it, what's invisible about God as well as what is visible is his glory. And so when, through relationship with God, we grow to be more like him, which is what you do if you're in relationship with anyone, you learn it's a way of ch- changing, you, become, you learn hopefully about the good things of them and learn and take them on. When, through relationship with God, we grow to be more like him, we come to share in his glory. And that will be one sense in which Simeon talks about God's glory being for his people. But secondly, the other part of the dictionary definition is, um, is public recognition of great achievements. And glory, God's glory comes also from what he does. I just want to dwell on this. Let's think about what God does. Of course, that's a subject that has filled and will continue to fill many weighty tones. Um, I've seen some of them. There are many things God has done. I've mentioned some today. Creation, saving, revealing, indwelling... They're all glorious. But what's perhaps more relevant here is what's called the kingdom of God. Isaiah, in the reading that we heard earlier, paints a very poetic, a very evocative picture of the kingdom of God. It's God's plan to reorder the world according to his kind and loving rule. And the kingdom is what Jesus described as his work when he started his ministry. So just two chapters later in Luke, Jesus is starting his ministry, and he says, quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is talking there about the kingdom and how his mission is to bring the kingdom The kingdom is also what we pray when we pray the prayer Jesus taught us. We pray, may your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Jesus preached a lot about God's kingdom. His ministry, his healing, his casting out of demons, that was the kingdom. Everything he did was for the kingdom, even his death and resurrection. They were necessary to make the kingdom come. And when Jesus comes again, it will be to announce the inauguration of his kingdom, of his perfect kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. 
So that kingdom will be and is God's glory. But we have a share in the glory. He co-opts all of his followers into joining him on the mission that is the kingdom. We are helped by the Holy Spirit living in us, shaping us, and guiding us for the task, helped by that relationship with, with God through Jesus, through the Spirit. We are building God's kingdom whenever we do good, whenever we make a stand for the what's right, whenever we care for the poor, heal the sick, bring about any sort of positive change. We're building the kingdom with him. We're building a foretaste of the perfect kingdom that will come when he comes again. So we have a real part in God's mission. And therefore, as the world comes to recognise the glory of God, the wonder of God and the wonder of his kingdom, we will have a share in that glory. So that's why I believe Simeon declared that Jesus did not come just for God's glory, but for the glory of God's people. That's why God reveals himself through Jesus, why he enables us to have a relationship with him through Jesus. Because the kingdom he is building and we are building with him must have his character. So we need to know God really deeply so that the kingdom that we are part of building can have his character. And of course, it's why he came to save us. Because if we were still in exile, if we hadn't been saved, we couldn't be part of this. Do you remember at the beginning, and I'm coming to the end now, do you remember at the beginning, I suggested that some people, many people maybe, might be looking for a saviour for very practical reasons. And the kingdom means that Jesus is not just a spiritual saviour who will take us to heaven when we die. The kingdom means Jesus is also a practical saviour. With the help of his church, he will right the wrongs on earth. And he'll do that before we die, as well as supremely when he comes again. So as we close, it turns out that this talk, like Elaine's and Karen's before it, it's also about making ourselves available to God. I've covered very briefly, as not as briefly as Simeon, I love his poetry, but we've covered the whole sweep of history. We've covered the breadth of God's role across the world. And yet, in the end, it comes down to us. Each one of us making ourselves available to God. Making ourselves available to be saved by Jesus. Recognising we need a saviour. Making ourselves available to get to know God through Jesus. And so become more like him. And making ourselves available to join with God in building and participating in Jesus' kingdom, and so making ourselves available to share in God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brilliantly brief description of why Jesus came. And thank you that as we dig into it, we learn more and more about you, and we are pointed the way towards you, towards relationship with you.
towards accepting you as Saviour and towards what you came here to do. And I pray you would make that real to each one of us now. Help us, show us how to respond to this word now and as we go about our our lives. Amen.